Welcome to, or welcome back to the Magnus and Marcus podcast. I'm Steve Magnus. I'm the cross-country coach at the University of Houston, author of The Science of Running, and I'm joined by my pal, John Marcus, the coach of High Performance West, and all-around for philosopher of life, as I like to say. John, good to be talking with you again. Same, Steve. I'm glad to pull you out of the depths of your Olympic post-Olympic hangover, as all of us had 17 days of exciting athletic competition to watch and also some disheartening administrative revelations to hear about, I, but I, such is the global event that is the Olympics. I think hangover is the right word to use. Yeah, <laughs> yes, in every sense. In every sense. <laughs> uh, oh, man. So we could spend our life talking about the Olympics and the hangover that we just received from it but i think we're gonna stray away from that topic for a little bit and john you brought up an interesting topic that i think is worth exploring especially as we come off the olympics as you know from my point of view if you look at what um fans have been saying and looking at is is post olympics it's like oh what group's been really successful what coaches have been really successful who who has won the most medals who has gotten the most people on the team all that good stuff and if we look at how we define coaches most of the time the the go-to is what have you done right wins on the track championships won olympians coach and that kind of becomes the default of what makes a coach successful. Now, we want to look at that from a couple different angles and ask the question of, what is success? What success is a coach? So, I don't know. Where do you want to start, John? Well, I think it's just an unpackaging about what defines or what we all define as being a successful coach. I mean, you know, most coaches in Northern America and, and, you know, very forward thinking affluent countries, you know, are in it to, to have some type of positive impact, whether it be on the directly on the athletes they're working with, how their athletes perform in competitions, um, you know, on the sport within their region, you know, or nation or even in a global international context. So, you know, as Steve and I have aged, we, and we've bounced back off each other and even our mentors have, you know, um, mirrored the very similar awareness and coming of age about what it, what defines success. Cause at a certain point you're in this career path and you're a coach for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And just by surely being consistently in the profession, you're going to coach high level athletes who run very, very fast championships ship low athletes who win some type of you know or a series of meets whether it's at the city state national international level it and yet sometimes i think we we tend to look towards the highest highest performers and as we do and create a celebrity about them create a celebrity about those coaches and those athletes like we do with our movie stars or our directors and saying these are the best of the best and we'll look to them to define what success is and then we'll mirror and mimic that. And in some ways, you know, it's, that's a good, um, beacon to point you in a, a appropriate direction. And in some ways it's really hollow. It's really false because you really have to know what's going on. Um, you know, with an in-depth perspective to be able to know if 
that type of situation or coaching circumstance, an athlete relationship is something to idolize. I mean, one thing I threw out to um, a, a group of friends, you know, coming off these Olympics was if you look at the global medalists for Team USA, save one, um, in the middle distance and distance events, every one of those athletes has a six figure plus, you know, um, sponsorship deal or multiple sponsorships that put them up to six plus figures. So if that's what it takes for an American athlete, distance athlete to be competitive is a minimum of a six figure deal year in and year out for a sustained period of time. You know, the narrative is not what it was when it was Frank Shorter or Bill Rogers in the seventies and eighties pounding the pavement, pounding the road and getting the miles in and living this austere monkish lifestyle with this sole focus to, you know, you know, for Olympic fame, fame and glory with no promise of a huge payday. You know, these athletes are already having huge paydays relative in the sport. And there's several who, you know, have similar deals who didn't make it to the Olympics, didn't make it to the final, didn't make it to the podium. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, is that something to that's style of preparation and emphasis on where you compete and how you compete? Is that something to emulate or is that something to you know take with a little bit of a grain of salt and so i know for me when i was a younger coach i thought man if i coach people at the olympic trials or to the olympics or to the what is de facto the pinnacle supposed pinnacle of our sport or ncaa champion state champion whatever then i'm going to be seen as you know someone who's competent and you know successful but in the last 10 years that has rapidly shifted, especially in the last like three years with the more knowledge I've gained about the art of coaching, the industry, the profession, and me trying to recalibrate and reshape my narrative about where I want to place myself in my, you know, working environment and how I want to see myself and how I want to interface and what type of activities I want to interface and nurture and foster development and growth in. So, if you would ask me like 10 years ago, man, if you coach, you know, someone to the Olympics, Olympic trials, you know, that's going to be the pinnacle. I would have said, oh, hot damn, yes. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, now it's like I've really shifted more towards what I call enlightened coaching, which is more relationship based, more getting people to focus on their process and them being the best them they can be and not worrying to um, you know, live up to an artificial standard of excellence. Like I have to run this time or I have to be able to run these paces or I have to run this standard and hit this mark. And if I don't hit this mark, then all my preparation and, um, you know, uh, training is for naught. Or if I do make it, then it all, you know, then it all comes to fruition. Um, yeah. and it was all worth it. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point because, you know, similar to you, if, you know, we had a nice little time machine, right? And we went back a decade when I was first going into coaching. And my first coaching gig was coaching high school kids. I actually volunteered first, right? And at that point, it was, man, if I ever coach someone to make an Olympic trials or Olympic games, man, then I know as a coach I've made it. Because that is that is the barometer that you set for yourself. You're like, oh, the Olympic Games, like that's great. If I have someone make it, then I I know what I'm doing as a coach. And if you ask me now, I still don't think I know what I'm doing entirely. So obviously that's not right. But it's like 
in the development of defining success, it moves from this um, outcome-oriented orientated, uh, approach where we say, all right, I need to hit the marks, coach athlete to championship to, you know, state record time or, you know, um, making the Olympic trials, making the Olympic games, meddling A, B, and C, right? It just goes down the list of doing that. But I think as you, as you pointed out over the years, my viewpoint has shifted more towards that kind of, um, as you said, philosophical side of, I'm going to focus on getting the athletes as good as I can. And I think in my own story, part of what shifted that is I saw that world-class athletes and 16, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids coaching them up is, is the same, right? It takes different skills or different approaches, but to get the best out of a 15 year old kid, is very similar to getting the best out of a 25-year-old athlete trying to make the Olympics. It's it's that same approach. It's that same feeling afterwards. I can tell you, I can sit here and tell you stories about, you know, races watched where I've gotten just as much external joy out of watching a uh, 17-year-old high school kid run some super slow time, but that was great and fast for him as I have for some Olympian or some, you know, world-class athlete um, who's done an amazing performance as that feeling of joy um, is the exact same. And I think what that gets down to is that our evolution of defining success tends to, tends to change as we uh, develop as coaches. Um, one would hope. Yeah. One would, one hope. would hope. And I think, <laughs> you know, maybe it doesn't, I, I think it's pretty obvious that for, for certain people, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I think this is why we're having this conversation. If you look at my coaching mentors, and I'm sure yours are the same, either mentors I knew or know um, who really put an emphasis on developing people first or developing each athlete as an individual um, or mentors that I have never met but highly look up to like a John Wooden, right? who revolutionized coaching, if you look at his his approach, his approach is not on a, I need to coach this many champions, right? If you look at lasting legacies of coaches like that, they've really obviously kind of come to the terms of, all right, in order to do great things, I have to develop great people and kind of put that first, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to figure out, are you a business coach or are you a teacher coach? Much as, you know, in philosophy, you have in, um, you know, ancient Greek and Roman times, the ideal of the philosopher king like uh, Marcus Aurelius. I mean, yes, you have to take care of business. You have to be employed or figure out a way to generate income so you can do your craft in this modern day and age. But, you know, now what we have is we have a lot more business coaches who are more concerned about impressing each other, impressing like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to impress this potential head coach and potential boss at this, you know, highly lucrative power, you know, um, five program. So I can get this really cush job that comes with all these accoutrements and facilities and yada, yada, yada. So look at this great resume. Let me cozy up to them, you know, and then I got it made. Or are you trying to develop 
you know, and teach the people in front of you to hopefully have a lasting impact. You know, going back to my early years, I thought the more champions I coach would make me, would define me as a better coach and a more accomplished coach. And now what my marker is, especially coaching younger people, you know, who are not married below the age of like, say, 25 or so, is is my impact and influence substantial enough that when they get married, they'll invite me to their wedding? You know, like that is, that's critical. You know, that's, and it's a subtle difference. And cause you're not going to be able to, not everyone's going to be able to win the race or be a champion in the regards of just the superficial winning and losing, but you can have a very deep impact, potentially deep impact on every single athlete. And I think those that's how why I fell in love with coaching was that type Bill Barman type, that John Wooden type, you know, those, those myths, cause I mean, they're imperfect human beings as well. And I'm sure not everything we read is accurate, but the myths about being so concerned with the person and that person understanding you have that, that almost filial relationship of, you know, security, trust, appreciation that they're going to just, you know, train their butts off, run, run their heart out and be able to transfer those lessons learned to the broader scope of their life. Yeah. That's the more enduring impact, you know, versus how many championships did this athlete win or how fast did they run? Well, and I think that's a good measuring stick. You know, I use it as, I'll give you an example. My high school coach called me, you know, two days ago, right? And this is, God, I don't even know how old I am anymore, but 13 years later, right? And I'm still talking to him. You know, not all the time, but occasionally, right? One of my my mentors, as I've said many times, Tom Telez, I still talk to him all the time. And it's it's like having that impact. And if you talk to, you know, a bunch of my, my counterparts who I all ran with in high school and college, they all generally have some sort of coaching figure who they still keep in somewhat communication with today whether that's a high school coach or a college coach or post-collegiate or whatever, is is some coach made a huge impact on this person's life where they still feel like they're part of their inner circle decades later. And I think that that impact shows success more than some guy who, or some college coach, for example, who used all of his athletes to win a couple conference championships and then will never ever talk to those athletes again or it's not even talk to them we'll never if those athletes showed up it's like not there's no time of day right and i think that that difference on defining yourself as a coach um is important i think the other thing is they're not mutually exclusive i think sometimes coaches get this when you're young you get this idea of oh if i want the accolades and have to do this i have to be cutthroat and just go all in and if I have a goal to, you know, coach at a power five conference in a major school so I can win championships, I it's all about me and I have to do everything for myself to uh to get to that level. And you see coaches all the time, you know, where it's all about them and they're using the athletes to get to that. And that that mentality is sometimes ingrained in like how we become successful. But I think if you look at the lasting legacies, that the coaches who have done it for decades, the the coaches um, who still in their seventies and eighties, like Gags, right, are coaching mm-hmm. up a storm, and everybody loves them wherever they go. Um, 
I think those are testaments to to coaches who have said, "Hey, we're going to do it the right way, but we're also going to be successful while doing it." Right, and I mean another measuring stick too that you as a coach or even you know, your athletes can do is like, did this person make me faster, or did they help make me holistically better? And I think that that's that's what you're charged with is can you make people better human beings or you know in some way shape or form where it's how they relate to themselves how they relate to their competitors their teammates you know how they relate to the world at large like did they improve my circumstance did they were they really concerned with that or were they just concerned about me being ready to run up time on a certain day to score a certain number of points or to win a certain medal or something of that and i think that's that's a key distinction because athletes are people and they can feel it and they can feel when you're authentic and you give a shit and they can mm-hmm. also feel when you, it's like you don't and you're just another in a long line that hey if you get injured we got someone right behind you that's willing to you know step in and 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 do the same thing because they're next on the the chopping block and so you know it is it's also about this is the same discussion that happens in business and management and how you relate to your employees and, you know, how you create a really caring, you know, work environment where, yeah, you still have objectives to, you know, achieve and you still want to be competitive. And this isn't just kumbaya, everyone hold hands and mm-hmm. let's just get better for the sake of getting better. But what I've noticed is it's you, you talk, the younger coaches that I interact with, and I, I mean, and again, I'm still a young coach by measure only having been coaching for it's my 11th year now but even the you know rookies i guess are very concerned about the x's and o's it's like hey what's physiologically the appropriate stimulus what system are we you know engaging today as if all this stuff is in isolation and it goes back to how you do anything is how you do everything mentality where you know you want to know people like simon sinek if you read his book leaders eat last people feel that authenticity that you have their back at all times if you really are putting them first by giving them you know basically the shirt off your back and yet we you know we we throw up a stink when we see these IOC, you know, executive committee members taking 900 a day per diem and then trying to like sell $2 million of tickets on the black market to further pad their pockets. And we're like, wait a second, you're not giving the shirt off your back. What you're doing is you're taking as much as you can get at all costs. And the athletes aren't people. They're just a commodity to you. That's the product on display. And it could, you know, as well be just elephants and donkeys, whether it's athletes and, and that to coaches and people who interact and interface, you know, physios, PTs, other athletes with these human living, breathing human beings on a day to day basis is infuriating and rightfully so. But that's also the coach's job is to buffer against all that administrative boo-ha-ha and to really just make sure like the, the person in front of you is valuable. I always tell people it's like, yeah, you may look at these really superstars or mega athletes who run all these fast marks and win all these races, but it comes back to you know the parable of this young man was walking on the ocean. He came up onto a child, and it was during when the tide had come in and then came out, and there's a bunch of starfish on the beach, and they were all dying, and this little child was 
taking them and throwing them back, literally hundreds of starfish all down the beach. And the child just took upon themselves to put all the starfish back in the ocean, back in their place so they wouldn't die. And he goes, you know, the young man comes up to the child and says, hey, there's literally millions in the sea. You know, there's not a shortage of them. You don't need to put them back into the ocean. It'll be okay. The population won't go down. And the child just looked at the young man, you know, and blinked and said, well, it matters to this starfish whether it lives or dies. And that's our job as coaches. You may not be coaching the next medalist or record, you know, holding athlete, but it matters to that starfish (laughs) whether you give a shit or not. And you just have to remember that's why we do what we do. And yet sometimes we lose our way because you see people having this superficial success of winning races or championships or team titles. And it looks like everything's all peaches and creams because everyone's celebrating that victory in the moment. But you never know that win could be with the most hollow infrastructure possible. And that's all that group has to celebrate is that they got this W, but no one cares about each other. And that to me is when that happens in the more business-minded coaching platforms is a you know very sad moment because it's ca- counterintuitive to what you know many coaches and many people in like academia or these types of giving back industries um, initially got into the first place and so now more than ever it's difficult to juxtapose the impetus of caring about people also with the survive the business of survival yeah. And, you know, I've always said, I I think I gave this in a presentation or two, is when you're dealing with athletes or communicating with athletes, the number one rule is you have to give a shit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. Like, we can talk about all sorts of, like, psychology and communication skills and all that stuff. But the number one rule is you have to give a shit and you you have to let your athletes know that you do. And they have to see it. And most of the time, they're pretty good at at seeing it or not seeing it um and their perception is reality so you have to get it across that you care and i think from you know from a coach success standpoint i think a lot of times what happens in this kind of business model as you named it is that just like in other aspects of life we get really tied up into like the external rewards of it right we think that, oh, if we coach this athlete to get to this level, then we're going to feel good, finally. And then people are finally going to respect me, right? Not to bring politics into it, but there was a really good interview with, I'm blanking on his name, I'm getting old, I guess, and memory's going, <laughs> but there was a really good interview with someone who spent a lot of time with Trump, with Donald Trump, before he you know decided to... Uh, during the election. So I think it was 2013, 2014. He spent some time, a lot of time with him. And he said his, his biggest takeaway is that he wanted to be in the club. And what that meant was he just wanted to be seen as this guy who was successful. And it wasn't Donald Trump's definition of success. He wanted other people to think that he was successful. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in coaching... Not that we're Donald Trump, but I think in coaching, sometimes people fall into that trap of, I just want to be seen as successful. Right. And, and what and that, you, go ahead. Go, I mean, and, and you see it like in the college ranks. It's like, yes. where the coaches polo, where the, you know, oh, you have 
you're sponsored by the same shoe manufacturer, your team, you're outfitted head to toe and matching, you know, apparel with your school's logo on it. And that's all you wear all the time. Yes, exactly. And that's your whole, that's your whole wardrobe. <laughs> and, and it's like, I've made it. Look, Ma, I have all this gear from the shoe manufacturer that's trying to, you know, create this association of legitimacy with our, our program and myself. And yet I'm trying to create a sense of legitimacy because I have the shoe manufacturer sponsoring our track and field team. And, and, and it's just trite. It falls on deaf ears. It's like the same thing I tell post-collegiate kids who are like, oh, well, I want to get a sponsorship and get kit and get gear and just be kitted out, you know, same brand head to toe. And it's like, guys, it's not about the shoes. It's about what you do in them. Like yeah. you can have every other – you can wear a T-shirt oh. and you'd be the same person. Or you you can go watch the uh, the master himself, Mark Wetmore, walk around in jeans and a T-shirt. Or jeans and a shirt. Sorry. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, I I stole half. I mean, when I saw Whitmore doing that, like, I, I stole half my style, like, from him. I was like, oh, he's winning. He's smart. He knows what really matters. Yeah. Like, in him wearing just jeans and a flannel T-shirt or a flannel shirt or a T-shirt with no brands on it whatsoever, with no marking that even says University of Colorado, he gets what matters. He gets what counts. And yet it's very, and yet most people will look at him and be like, Oh, he's outside the norm. He doesn't fit in. He's, he's not in the club impressing other people in the club. Like, you know, from my brief interactions with him, I can tell he doesn't give a shit about press, impressing anyone in the club. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And and and, but, and and that's the thing is he he probably I talked to him a couple times, but I would guess he defines success in a way that means something to him. And mm-hmm. and that's the that's the problem right now is or always I guess is that like that sensation of needing to belong, needing to feel like I've proved myself. I think is a trap that a lot of young coaches fall into. And if I can tell anyone piece of advice is don't fall into that trap, right? Because what happens is you just get into this like, oh, if I only coach this person, then now I'll be respected. Or if I only make it up to this school, I'll be respected. Or if I hang out with these people, you see this all the time at meets and at at um, the coaches uh, convention, actually, if I get in this group, then I'm going to be respected as a coach with this person. And I can tell you, you know, straight up from my experience is like going from a person who coached only high school kids to, you know, I, I just had someone run in the Olympics last week. There's it doesn't change, right? It's yeah, a meets a meet, a meets a meet. It doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. Like I am no better of a coach because I coached, you know, X, Y, and Z person to great Olympic trials or Olympic, you know, participation. It doesn't. If I can coach, I can coach. And, you know, that's that's what's lost on this. Another thing is from the outside, like, is perception isn't going to change because all of a sudden you got your first Olympian. Right? right? It doesn't. It doesn't change at all. So why do people focus on like, oh, if I can only get in the club, then I'll be successful? And, you know, as you – and those are questions we all have to ask ourselves as we're maturing. Like you come to a, you know, a fork in the road and you start to get some opportunities. You start to get noticed a little bit. You've been doing a good job. It's like, okay, am I going to go the conventional path? that you know it's more about sustaining the club and the system than it is about the people the athletes who were actually 
um, supposedly supposed to be investing in and building up? Or do I go the unconventional path where it's a lot more um, undefined, you know, a lot, a lot a lot hairier, a lot, a lot more variability, a lot less security, supposedly. But I have creative, you have creative control, you know, and your voice and your ability to develop is solely dependent on you. And you see this like in the music industry. I mean, I always ask people like, well, what's your favorite memory of a concert? Is it the big mega tour concert in the sports arena that has 80,000 people, you know, and it's just... Yeah, hair to get in and, and the, the person on stage just lip syncing to an autoplay, you know, auto recording. And they're just doing this very scripted and rehearsed dance that they've been doing, you know, for seven, eight weeks. Or is it going to that little acoustic you know, venue, 100 people, you know, sold out, small, intimate. And man, it was the most amazing show. And they, they you know, played these sets and the riffs and the improv and they did all these covers that you never heard before. And that's where you have to define like, which experience do you want? You know, because there's a price for either one in terms of if you're going to play the mega tours and you're going to go to those kind of power five, you know, uh, type in the club as Steve and I are calling it programs. There's a price for that. Like you, I mean, basically everyone wants that job. So you got to keep that job. And it's the athletes are more or less a commodity and less people. Because you're just trying to keep your job from year to year. And so is your head coach. If, or if you're the head coach, so are you. And keep your administrators happy. Or do you go to the smaller programs or start your own program or go to a less noticeable, less higher you know, accolade level and you know, coach them up? Like you know, I was a former mid-major college coach. Like Steve's a mid-major college coach at Houston. And there's a, there's a lot – of difficulty at that level there's a lot to overcome but there's also a lot more purity in my opinion because you get a lot of, you get to have a lot more honest and authentic relationships with those people and those athletes versus just treating these people and athletes like commodities at the power five level where they got to score points because they're on scholarship or else and i mean that those are the hard questions you're gonna have to come into as you develop and you you know become come you know more into your coach's shoes and hat and stopwatch so to speak yeah exactly and i th- i think that's what it comes down to you know taking it maybe from mu- music to movies is like i almost see it as a director right do you want to be do you want to be that um that michael bay type director where you just direct blockbusters who you know no one really cares about because they're super action, high budget, um, turn your brain off and, you know, watch all this action and explosion take place, which is fine. Occasionally we need that. Do you want to be that type of director? Do you want to be the independent director like a, you know, a Robert Rodriguez or a Wes Anderson or someone like that who just does like it a Woody for, Allen yeah. or Woody Allen who does it for the craft. Right. Or do you want to be someone like Steven Spielberg who, you know, has obviously has incredible con- creative control and has big budget movies, but does it in his way and has earned that right. Right. And I think those are the those are the choices you have to make as as a coach is is on the coaching side is just like. You know, Woody Allen has become 
incredibly successful. Steven Spielberg has been successful, whoever. They've done it really well. Um, you can do it at, at the highest level in college at the major schools like a Mark Wetmore. Um, but I think it, it shifts of how you define success, you know, and I think that's what we're trying to get across in this is that I'm, if you asked Woody Allen, for example, and I don't know this, I'm assuming it, but if you asked him what his favorite movies were that he directed or his most successful in his mind, he wouldn't go, Oh, let me check the box office score. Right. No. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't say, Oh, let me check how much money they made. He would give you his opinion based on how well he thought he did as a director giving that vision and getting that to come out on the screen. Right. Right. And as someone who's read a lot of Woody Allen autobiographies or biographies, like, you know, he sees himself more as a writer, you know, as at least what's communicated through those, those yep. works. And he's only acted and directed by sheer like necessity. And, you know, I think he stayed true to the craft of writing, but he's been able to be diverse in her portfolio of capabilities and not specializing just going back to like oh i'm only a distance coach i'm only a sprint coach i'm only a jumps coach and you know a lot of that specialization it hurts not just in terms of awareness and clarity about what you can perform and who you can coach and the type of people you're coaching but also to it you don't have the empathy for the other coaches in those different event groups. So if I've only in distance world all the time and I'm segregated from throws world or jumps world, and I don't know the struggles and pitfalls and challenges they have on a day-to-day coaching basis and also personality basis too, then I, we start to sequester and, and you see that more and more and more is clicks form in these clubs or these coaching clubs where it's like these sprint clicks, these throw clicks, these, you know, distance clicks and it's difficult to bridge that gap and just talk coaching. But I think if people can just sit there and talk coaching people, not X's and O's about, you know, working in this system or that system or these sets and reps and intensities of exercises, and we get back to just, hey, how do you deal with people? And knowing that's a really important part of the craft, like the most important part of the craft, then, you know, my optimistic and hopeful that we can expand. I mean, some of the best learnings I've ever gotten from, you know, coaching colleagues has actually been talking to people outside my specialization group because they've been able to relate different ways and constructs that they problem solve that then I'm able to then take and maybe apply when a unique problem that I've never encountered pops up and be like, whoa, that, you know, this throws coach or, you know, the soccer coach or this basketball coach, you know, they encountered this before and it was just interesting talking to them. I didn't just follow it away and like, oh, hey, here's a solution to test. Let's try this solution and let's problem solve. And, you know, Vern says it a lot, Vern Gambetta, you know, the older he gets, he has more questions than answers. <laughs> and I think th- that's true of any good coach because it's like the more you know, the more you don't know. And so the same deal here. I have many more questions now than I had eight years ago when I was knew that this type of physiological system, you know, whether it was V Hill, Daniels, Lydiard, whatever was absolute and worked. And now you understand it's a lot more subtle than that. And, you know, some people are always hypocritical of say, like say a Wetmore or a Schumacher who doesn't go out and share their knowledge and share their quote unquote system of training, but knowing, you know, Jerry pretty well and also knowing of Wetmore and knowing a master coach is, 
there is no system. They just know when to apply what they need to apply to help that athlete progress wherever they are in their career. So this idea you have to have this, you know, system like a, a, a timetable or an Excel sheet of progression that's linear available for athletes to coach them up is, you know, unfortunately a very superficial myth that there's still being taught a lot. And it's like when you start to really master craft, you understand when that applies and when it doesn't apply and to who it applies and doesn't apply at different times, not only within, you know, the micro of a given session or the sub macro of a training cycle or the macro in terms of their long-term development for however long you're working with them and developing. And, and it's very difficult to communicate that because people want that superficial, easy digested 10 steps to running a faster PR well, in 10 weeks. And, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and I think that ties back into how you define success, right? It's a lot easier. Uh, well, we'll start with an athlete. It's a lot easier for an athlete to say, oh, how'd I do? Um, did I PR or did I not? Versus saying, oh, how did I do? And then breaking down the race and say, did I make the right decisions at the right time? Yes. Did I push, yeah. did I push when I needed to? Was I tough when I was supposed to be? Um, was I engaged when I was supposed to be? Or did I lack focus and take myself out of the race too early or too late? How did I set myself up? It's a lot harder to do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to say, okay, did I win or did I lose, right? And did I PR or yep. did I hit the qualifying standard or did I not? Exactly. And <laughs> I think if you look at our entire society almost, like grading and schools, right, a lot easier to just write a number, tell us what we are. But as coaches, it's the same too. It's the same. It's easy to say, all right, you know, did my top runner do what they needed to do? Did my team... Did my team, you know, win the conference meet, get top three, whatever, whatever it is, all that stuff. And there's tons of literature on goal goals, and that's the topic for another day. But I think, like, defining yourself by that marker that is e is that marker that is um, easy to understand is the easy cop out way out, right? It's the way to say it's essentially the way to say, all right. I've given myself a check mark for evaluating this race, whether it went good or bad, or I gave myself a check mark on evaluating how I did as a coach this season or this race, and essentially shoves it off into the corner and says, okay, I don't have to think about that anymore. It's like permission to stop thinking. It's mm -hmm. permission to stop evaluating things. And I think if you judge yourself as a coach or athlete or hell, as a person in life, as I'm going to have a deeper dive of understanding what my impact actually is. Is am, am I making this person a better person? Am I helping to contribute to his gro his growth as an athlete? And I, you know, not to go on a tangent, but uh, we had cross country camp last week and I had to have a, a pretty hard conversation with one of our athletes. And it wasn't a very fun conversation for them, right? But and at that time, that athlete probably didn't like me very much. But in terms of growth and development for that athlete, it was the conversation we had to have. And I'm hopeful and it looks good that things are going to move in the direction they need to do. And I think that's like, as a coach, 
it's almost how you judge yourself as a parent. Like you don't judge yourself as a parent on how many blue ribbons I got or my kid got at, you know, school or how, how, um, what is, what is grade average was in elementary school or junior high, right? When parents look at kids, they say, okay, they look at how is my kid now as an adult, right? Did, did he get the lessons that I wanted to him to get? Does he have a happy life that is full of meaning, right? It's not, no, no one gives a shit if, if he, you know, if he got a 3.7 GPA as a uh, high schooler, you know, when he's 30, 40 years old, that's not how you judge them. So I think as, as coaches, it's the same thing as we have to take a deep dive and really try to judge our success, not based on the convenient numbers. Right. It's how you deal with the, the narrow losses and also the blowout losses you know going back to like nba i mean i tell like the athletes i work with like you're gonna have some blowouts like you're gonna be training being feeling well prepared and going to a race and you just can get waxed for no good reason and you and i both won't know why but they happen blowouts happen and it doesn't make the golden state warriors you know any less competitive or you know any less closer because they lose a couple games you know, in the regular season to, you know, setting some type of all-time win record. I mean, they're going to lose. Like, no one ever thinks in NBA, oh, yeah, you're going to win every day, every game. And not and same with life and races. It's how how you deal with those blowout losses when they come out of left field and you're like, wow, <laughs> I didn't expect to lose by that much. Whoa. <laughs> you know, and really get people to wrap their mind around the process of, yes, did you push did you take a risk did you you know go and challenge yourself at this at this critical stage in the race or did you not have the confidence to do that and that again it's much more difficult you know because more paintbrushes and canvases to talk about that rather than hard excel files and stopwatches to say okay go through 600 meters at 90 seconds and you'll if you do that you'll run 202 for 800 as a female or something you know but it what ends up happening is it puts that superficial ceiling on us. And yes, it's more secure and, you know, it's much more easier to process on a superficial level, but then you don't know if you're ready to produce some Bravo performance that was in you all along. And as you know, I've evolved, I've talked more and more about, about just being the best you, you can be when it counts and getting ready to be the best you and whatever, how good you are is just how good you are. Like I love Desi Linden's quote after the Olympic marathon for women, like probably the best quote there was like, this is just how good I am. <laughs> you know, no excuses, no apologies. Like I trained my ass off the best I ever trained. I felt really confident. I was injury free. I was ready to go. And this is just how good I am. Here I am. Take it, take it as it is. And you know, hats off to her, the Hansons, you know, her and her support team, for just being able to infuse her with that type of like confidence and just knowledge about it is what it is. No, oh, I didn't. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll get it was like it was one of the most mature and best post race you know interviews of any athlete of any discipline I you know processed after the trials. And I was like, yeah, that's what this is about. That's what life is about. Like you get on your deathbed and you're like, 
look, this is just as good as I could live, <laughs> given all the circumstances. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think we could have a separate podcast on, on Desi's entire marathon performance. Oh, yeah, but, for sure. You, you know, as if I give coaches or athletes one suggestion is go watch it, right? And I'm sure most of you have. But just watch the control from the beginning of running her own race, right? And then, as you said, at the end, knowing that she's satisfied, even though she, you know, she ran a spectacular race, but didn't come away with the, the normal defined marker of success, a medal, right? She ran a spectacular race and had the reaction you said you just mentioned, right? And in her mind, she defined success as I did what I could. I executed my plan to perfection, and this is what I had, so I can walk away feeling good. And she had the discipline to do that during a race. And I think that, above anything that John or I could tell you, is probably the most profound lesson as a coach or athlete you could take away. Well said. I think we'll we'll quit there. Quit while we're ahead. All right, good. We'll we'll rely on Desi to get our own messages across. Thank you, Desi. Yes. All <laughs> praise Des. Good good job, Des. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. Well, thanks uh thanks again for listening, guys. Um we'll try to keep these things regular as John bothers me to uh make sure they get I get them up as we get into cross country season. So oh, yeah, um, it's Steve's fault. I mean, I'm just going to I'm going to follow the choir here and just blame Steve Magnus for anything you the, don't like. The, and you, and you know what? You know what? This is another t- topic, but I think I think I cause all of life's problems. So I, I, according yes, according according to a lot of things out there in the the Twitter in internet world that that if you believe what you read, yes, yes, if you believe what you read, I think I cause. I, I cause everything. I'm going to cause the end of the world pretty much. I think I I think I caused global warming too. Okay. So. Well, at least at least I'm glad I'm on your side. So, you know. <laughs> so, thanks for listening guys. If you like it, uh rate it on iTunes. I think that helps for something. I'm not sure what, but every other podcast says to, so rate it. We're just following suit. Yeah. In in one in once the one time we follow the, suit. The one time. <laughs> just so we don't that- know what we're doing. Just so that we can keep doing this and having these conversations. That's it. All right. Thanks for listening, guys.